Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts. Simply hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts now. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Something is range of emotions is extreme. Rage, loss, disappointment, betrayal, sick to the stomach, emptiness, futility. Those are just some of the words that Judge Crosby quotes in his sentencing notes of July 2020. These words described the new reality of the 81 victims of Barry Clue. You're listening to Clueless, the long con. A shadow dark upon the wall Moving slow and stretching tall And up to the mountains her gaze is pulled These weren't large institutional investors. These were ordinary uh, people who had, in many cases, had their life savings and what they thought was uh, a safe place. And it should have been a safe place. This is what annoys me so much about this case and why I'm perhaps so passionate about it. Because they had done what they are meant to do and what the retirement commissioner, among others, advises them to do. They had gone to an authorised financial advisor who was meant to give them advice and place their investments soundly and legitimately. They were not chasing the gold at the end of the rainbow, in which case you might have had a little bit of less sympathy for them because they were perhaps you know, speculators. These were speculators. They should have been able to trust this man. Mike Houlihan of the Otago Daily Times there. Of course, he's right. They should have been able to trust Barry Clue. In the last episode, we left the victims unravelling the mess of Barry's Ponzi scheme. And with little help from the serious fraud office, they were left to do the legwork individually because, of course, at that stage, they had no way of connecting with any of the other victims. It was a lonely, isolating and panic-filled limbo land. And the key to discovering whether their money was safe seemed to be on the Concilium platform, Barry's go-to online ledger. And that one little word, external. Concilium's phone lines were ringing off the hook with investors like Richard. When he started the phone call with Concilium that day, he had $183,000 invested with Barry Clue. But how much did he really have? We phone up and we get this lady on the phone and she was amazing. My name is Richard Roberts and got an investment with you through Barry Clue, and I just wonder if you can help me. And she went tap, tap, tap. She said, right, okay, Richard, 
Right. What I can tell you is this, that you are depositing $2,000 into our account. Good. Right. That money could have been going straight to him. I had no idea. She said, now, listen, on your portfolio here, you've got to look down the internal external column. And at the moment, she said, when I'm looking at these externals, that adds up to about $42,000, She said, I have got no idea where that money is. She said, but what I can tell you, the rest of it that's got internal, we should have that money. So immediately, as you can imagine, a sense of relief came across me knowing. And, and I remember a word she said, so the lion's share is safe. I can remember her saying them words. The lion's share should be safe. So at that point, I felt like I was waving goodbye to 45K. It had never been so weird to feel like celebrating that you'd, somebody had stolen 45 grand off you. you. You just couldn't reconcile that in your mind. It didn't work. It just didn't work. That is crazy, isn't it? To be relieved that it was only 45 grand of your life savings stolen. Richard is clearly a glass half full kind of guy and counted himself as one of the lucky ones. Although he didn't attribute it all to luck. Richard thinks there were two reasons that Barry Clue didn't completely clean him out of his life savings. Every time that Baz came to this house, I pulled out two files that were meticulous, that had dividers. When he asked a question, I could flick straight to that scheme and he knew that I was meticulous. And I think he would have been thinking, I've got to keep this squeaky clean with this rooster. I think that could have been what he was thinking. I don't know that, but those files gave him an impression that I better not push this one too far. If I poke this bear too hard, the second one, and this was this was that I've always wanted to, uh, to buy a house to retire into it. And For the last 10 years, I've been looking for just that one property. And so Baz knew that I was looking because if ever I saw a house and I thought I'm going to put a bid on it, I I phoned him up. And on two occasions, I was in his office, whiteboard. Right, you've got uh, 180,000 in there and and he's writing the numbers of what we need to do. And every time, the first option was, you know the portfolio, you need to take all that out of there and it needs to go against your mortgage. If all that would have been external, he had to find $180,000. He only would have had to find forty-five grand. So he was cutting his losses. But he knew that I could be calling on cash. Unlike a lot of the other guys, they were never going to draw on the cash till they retired. He knew he could just keep rocking and rolling with these guys. But he knew with me, I could phone him tomorrow. Baz, need that cash, got a house. He had to come up with a dough. And I think they're the two things. Fortunately, I was really lucky. I was really lucky. The Concilium platform seems to have been the golden goose for Barry Clue. He found a loophole in the system and exploited the crap out of it. And it could be that Richard was lucky that Barry had invested the lion's share of his cash. Or it could be that he was saving Richard's money for a rainy day because just because the money was in the internal column still, it didn't mean Barry couldn't move it to the all-important external column. To understand how he did that, we need to unwind the money trail. The first chunk of cash that I gave to him, we'd accumulated savings, and I think it was about $40,000. That was the most money I'd ever transferred in my life, ever. And then the report started coming in, and to the point where you know I was then investing money on a monthly basis, every either fortnight or a month, accumulating funds with him, So Richard had paid a lump sum of cash and had set up a recurring payment. 
But exactly where were those recurring payments going? Well, remember Richard had called Concilium and discovered this. They said, just hold on, Mr. Roberts, I can see that you're putting 2000 every single month into here. So I knew that it was going to their account because I actually thought it was going to some spurious account of his, which it could have been. I had no idea. So in Richard's case, that leaves him with that lump sum of 40000 that he transferred originally. And this is where things get murky because Barry's trail is so fudgy that even Richard doesn't know for sure how that money got into the external column. But there are several methods in Barry's Ponzi playbook. And I think in this case, it is most likely a play from Chapter 1, the fake bank account ruse. He had given us a piece of paper that said this platform's name and here we were believing that this is where the money went. It didn't say Barry Clue. It didn't say Barry Clue's bank account. It didn't have anything to do with Barry Clue on it. So the fake bank account ruse was pretty simple. Here's how the judge describes what Barry did once an investor was ready to make the investment and ready to transfer those funds directly to either Discovery or the Concilium platform. Mr. Clue provided his investment clients details of bank accounts named Discovery Portfolio Services or Concilium for the purpose of depositing funds for investment. Now, the investment clients deposited those funds into the bank account, believing they were owned by Discovery or Concilium, for example. Now, they were in fact business accounts, that much is true, but not for Discovery or Concilium. Instead, Barry had simply changed the names of his business accounts, of which he had sole control over. They were simply designated with trading names to look as though they were accounts for the Independent Financial Advisory Service, in this case, Discovery or Concilium. Here's reporter Hamish McNally. You've seen it before with your bank account when you go to transfer money or something and it's got particulars and codes and stuff. And I sometimes write something funny in there because when I pay someone who I know just as a joke. But that's all he was doing. It's the most basic thing out and just renaming an account. I mean, I'll tell you what, if I was transferring any money anywhere now, I would be interrogating that bank. I want proof. I want to know that is that account because I can never, ever remember thinking it wasn't just going to where it should go, wherever that was. Never questioned it, ever. Never questioned it at all. No way. That would be advice to anybody. If you're transferring money to an account, it's not just a number on a piece of paper. You've got to know whose that account is. I know in the UK where I live, banks have now tightened this loophole, but no matter what country you are listening to this podcast in, perhaps it's worth checking just how easy it is to change even your own bank account details. And if you can do it, then no doubt someone else with less innocent intentions can as well. Now, let's turn the page on Barry's Ponzi playbook. Chapter two is the fat finger excuse. He phoned me on a weekend saying he had inadvertently moved some money into a personal account. There was one instance where he transferred $100,000 into our account uh, by mistake. Twice, actually, he rang us to say that he had pushed the wrong button. He contacted me and said that, hey, mate, uh, sorry, I'm having a bad day. I've sent 100 grand to your account. Oh, oh, sorry, that was a mistake. No, it was just my fat fingers or... A flippant excuse like that. And could we pop it back in? I'm just sorting out your investments at this point and I have made a mistake. And can you uh, send it back to me? Put that money back into this bank account. And he gives us an account number and we transfer the money out into that account. So just how did this one work? 
Well, many investors had regular payments that were legitimately building up inside a discovery or concilium portfolio, like Richard, for example. This left Barry with a conundrum. The only way for him to access that money when it was actually in the platform legitimately was for it to be paid directly back into the client's account. Now, a financial advisor could request release of the funds for that client, but as an additional firebreak against any fraud, it could only be paid back into the account it came from. What that firebreak couldn't stop was a fraud disguised as a financial advisor and, more importantly, a friend. Barry actually did end up investing a small amount on the platform for us, but not being satisfied with having already stolen like 90% of the money, he then stole another 40000 and he got that paid out into our bank account. Didn't ring me because it was a joint bank account, but he rang Chris and he said, oh, the platform have made a mistake and have paid you inadvertently. I know that you're really worried about making sure the family are okay, so I'll get you to reinvest that money and put it back. And so Chris, being Chris, was like, oh, yeah, no, no problem. We don't need that at the moment. And Chris paid it back. But what he didn't know was where that money was going was not back to the platform. It had gone to the platform, but then Barry obviously ran out of money and then stole that money back and then played on the whole, you're dying, you want to keep your family safe. I know that this is really important to you because that's how he manipulated it. Never once, never once would I ever say, that that money ever went to what we believed or perceived to be his accounts. We always believed it was going to a platform. The first time I looked at Gary and I went, what the hell's he doing? He's not that stupid. And the second time I just sort of looked and shook my head and I went, something fishy's going on. And we should have really asked some questions. You just sort of, because he made such a joke of it when he rang up, oh God, I've been flying around. That was just his way of like, he took you under his wing. He made out that you were a really good friend and always a big cuddle when he came in. The second time I did, it went through my mind that it was quite suspicious. But of course, unless you had other suspicions, but in hindsight, it's definitely a red flag that you shouldn't let it slide. We subsequently found out, though, the very first meeting we had with people here, so many people said, my gosh, that happened to me. It just was like light bulb moment. Hearing Karen, Jan, Kim and all of the other investors reminds me of Dr. Das's comments on how people are groomed. Remember this one? So the way that people work is they gain small bits of confidence over increments over a long period of time. It's like the slowly boiling frog. You know, the frog doesn't know he's being boiled because the temperature's rising so gradually they don't Mm -hmm. even notice. So when the opportunity finally shows itself, you're primed to be conned, I think. By the time Barry's fat fingers had requested the victim's funds from the legitimate investments, the frog was boiled. And whilst we're on cooking analogies, the final chapter of Barry's Ponzi playbook is titled The Pressure Cooker Technique. There were many clues, if you look at the evidence further on in the, in the case, that he was getting desperate and he would often pressure clients to leave money in or to put money in or refuse to take money out. Something you could see in retrospect what he was doing. He was trying to keep money in the fund so he could pay someone else out who was asking for their cash at that point. So he said in court that he'd been operating it for 
decades. I mean, it could be as long as 20 years he's been doing this. Judge Crosby made reference to how two-thirds of his professional life have been a lie, one of his sentencing notes. And he's, yeah, he's no doubt right. Barry had been living beyond his capabilities for quite some time and had managed to luck himself into a system whereby he was able to hide it for so long. From time to time, he would contact us and say, look, I've got, I've got a special offer, I've got American cash. And he said, I've got one place spare and it's worth $10,000. So could you find $10,000 or could we take $10,000 from one of, your, one of your investments and invest in this cash? He said, you could make big money doing it this way. So we said, well, yeah, of course. So he would take money out of an investment, put it into our bank account. We would write him a check and he would invest in this special investment. And I guess that's where the money laundering started. Let's just wrap that in some context. I'm sure if you knocked on any of the victims' doors and offered them the exact same proposition on the same day that Barry did, they'd be like, "Mm, hard no, sounds dodgy, right? But how many of us would be thinking that of someone they had known for 30 years? I mean, just think about someone you've known for 30 years that you've trusted. Layer on top of that that they are government authorised. Layer on top of that that they have been running a seemingly reputable business without any blots on its record for years and years. Makes you ask yourself, what is your threshold for trusting someone? Three months? A year? A decade? 30 years? He phoned me up one night, and it was about three or four years before. Knowing what we know now, I know that the cards were about to fall, and he was fucking panicking. And he said, Richard, I need to come and see you. He said, I just need to ask you a favour. And so I said, okay, pop round. So he didn't say anything on the phone. He wanted to come round. This is all part of the act now, because if he'd have said it on the phone, it wouldn't have been as compelling. So he, he said, listen, I'll be round in 10 minutes. So I'm thinking, shit, that must be urgent. He comes round, knocks on the door, comes in, sits down, normal place. Me and Louise there. And he said, listen, I've got a... Um, There's a couple, friends of mine, and they're in Clyde. And what they've done, they've just bought a business, right? The problem is that they need a loan for the business and they can't get the loan in time for the purchase. So they need some bridging finance. He said, and I'm just trying to help them out. He said, so I'm contacting a few friends and see if we can get a bit of cash just to help them through. And what they've said is, whatever you can give them, they'll give it you back in three months' time, but they're going to pay you. And it was something like about a 10% interest. And I said, Okay, and this is how much I trusted the guy. I said, okay. I said, how much do they want? What kind of cash? He said, well, I'm trying to accumulate. He said, what you got? Like, I don't know, 10, 15,000, something like that. And uh, I said, okay. I said, I'll put 15 grand in. If it's going to help them out and it gets them to where they want to go, and I know I'm going to get it back, I'll put into the pot. And he said, thanks a lot. They'll be really happy to hear that. And I've just got to make a few more calls. All seemed very plausible. Now, knowing what I know, somebody had called on some cash. Somebody had called on some cash, and he fucking needed money quick sharp. And that was his excuse. Because about four days later, he phoned up. He said, Richard, I've sorted it out. We don't need that money anymore. The bank have come to the party. My opinion is somebody had called on some cash. He didn't have the money. He was playing the game. He was playing the game. 
never thought anything about it. As soon as it happened and he tipped up, that came to my mind straight away. You nearly, you nearly, the pack of cards nearly fell that day, mate. But he managed to get some cash from somewhere. I was conned totally. Yeah, in fact, it was later when I realised that time with him was like a grooming. Not an Epstein-type grooming, but similar in that it was a grooming for money. So that I lost all my holdbacks. Not only did Bronwyn lose all her holdbacks, at the time of Barry's downfall, she believed she had $170,000 with him. That money was made up of regular payments from her job as a pastoral carer in a high school. Money that Barry had appropriated through methods outlined in chapters one and two in his Ponzi playbook. So when it came time to retire, two things happened. The first is that Bronwyn could access her government-backed retirement savings pot, called KiwiSaver. And the second, well, Barry could see those monthly payments into his account from Bronwyn coming to an abrupt end. Because I was thinking of retiring, he was keen for me to cash in my KiwiSaver. But of course he was. Of course, of course, of course he was. He was an old woman. What did she know about money? And so he might as well have (laughs) the use of her money. And that's what happened. And, I mean, everything else, I, I feel like I had made the decision that I would put in so much. But with the KiwiSaver, it felt like he really conned me to put it in. He pressured me. You might as well have all your money in one one place. And he said, oh, yes, put it all together. Ha ha. <laughs> together in his pocket. <laughs> Just such incredibly disgusting greed, which, as Dr. Das pointed out, is a keystone trait in every fraudster. Another is that slick ability to manipulate. Listen out for it in this email that Barry sent Francis in May 2016 when perhaps his pockets were getting a little light for his liking. He says, we've had an offer fall in our lap. We have a limited time offer of a sovereign deposit bond. This bond is a 20-year bond which a client is exiting as they are using their cash for a property deal in Auckland. I've filled 650000 but still have 50000 to go. Would you guys be interested? So much to unpack in just a short snippet. First, Barry sets the clock ticking with a limited time offer. Then he adds in a plausible backstory, a bond. It's not some pie-in-the-sky.com startup investment. Add to that a little FOMO. That's fear of missing out, by the way. And he does this just by letting them know, you're not the only ones. In fact, I already have $650,000 invested, validating that others recognise this as such a great deal. So why wouldn't you? I would use your existing investment assets, but it takes about three to four weeks to do, and I have to have this done by Friday. You can invest anywhere between ten and 50000 Sovereign are owned by ASB, so this is a rock-solid investment, which I don't see very often. Of course Frances can't use her current investments, but not because it takes three to four weeks to unlock. It takes longer than that to unlock money that no longer exists in said investments. Then he rounds out by suggesting the amount and gives it the old Barry Clue rock-solid seal of approval. And not only is the clock ticking, it is also such a rare find. 
he doesn't see it often. So we put 50000 into that, and that was the last we saw of it. And somebody on the um, investor group, they mentioned that at some stage they had had the same story, but different months, different years. It was one of his ploys to get more money. One of Barry's many, many ploys. And as Judge Crosby recognised in his sentencing, these are not the ploys of a hapless opportunist thief, but something much darker, something much more premeditated. The judge actually called him like a sexual predator in the financial world. Those were his words. If you're enjoying Clueless The Long Con, then check out other podcasts by Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she had invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series. And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. In the judge's sentencing notes, there there was a psychologist that had assessed him. And what the psychologist says is he refers to Barry having a cognitive disorder or dissonance. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So cognitive dissonance is like a psychiatric phenomenon or psychological phenomenon, I should say, where somebody has two separate thoughts that are opposing and it causes them like distress inside. 
So to be specific for Barry, maybe one of his thoughts was, I'm a good person, I'm part of this community, and people like me. So that would be one aspect of his image that he has. But obviously, deep down, he knows that he is ripping people off. So mm. even, even though he might have a degree of denial, and I think he probably did, and even though he probably... So even though he might tr- have tried to convince himself that he's going to get at least some of the money back, I'm sure to a degree he he must have known that he was ripping people off. So there's a two kind of opposing thoughts. So that causes psychological dis- distress and people react with it in different ways. Some people go and confess and change their ways. Some people become really bitter and twisted or some people, you know, just displace it in some other way. So that's what cognitive difference is when you have two internal things that are struggling against each other. I think most con artists are just greedy, just want to do something relatively quick, take the money and dash and have very little remorse or empathy. Most would fit into that category. I think there would be some, especially if they're closely connected to their victim, you know, whether that's a romantic relationship or whether, like in this case, they've known them in the community. I think there probably is a degree of cognitive dissonance. But I suppose it was like what we were talking about before, over time, when you can kind of chip away at your own guilt or reduce your own guilt because it's lasted for such a long period of time. I think the same thing happens with cognitive dissonance to a degree. Dr. Des there with his professional insight. And if you want my unprofessional insight, I would suggest that Barry Clue used a sledgehammer to chip away at his guilt or lack thereof. But of course, I'm not the expert here. But I think it's interesting that fraudsters, they don't just chip away at the guilt. In this dark sort of twist of irony, like we saw with shame, they actually manage to transfer it to the victims. Now, oftentimes the victims are the ones who are left with those feelings of misplaced guilt. Guilt that they didn't trust their gut. Guilt that they didn't ask more questions. Guilt that they didn't spot red flags. Barry led us to believe we would get a statement every six months. But every time I asked, it was, oh, I forgot. Oh, I've had pneumonia. I'm just catching up on everything now. So he delayed every time. In your mind, you think, oh, he's done that before, but you don't put all that together. And I had a lot of doubts about him, particularly over the last two or three years. So it was a gut feeling that things weren't quite right. But in my mind, I thought, well, I'm going to retire soon. You know, we'll just leave it until then. I thought if I approach him to withdraw money, he's going to be quite angry with me about it. And I remember saying to my son, even just a few months before, something about, oh, I hope it's all okay. And he said, well, you've got it split up, done different investments there. And he said, people follow interest rates, you know, and somebody would be saying if those interest rates aren't right. It's likely that the reason Francis didn't act on these gut feelings is something called truth bias. Now, I'm not claiming to be an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination. But as I understand it, truth bias is the theory that when a stranger is lying, human beings default to assuming truth in others. We want to believe that what others tell us is true and we'll default to truth unless or until our doubts can't be explained or rationalised. And then there is gaslighting, used when a fraudster misleads the target, creating a false narrative and making them question their judgments and their reality. A great example of Barry changing the narrative is when Bronwyn had asked for funds to be transferred to her account for an upcoming trip. It was supposed to be in her account by a certain date, and when the funds didn't appear, Bronwyn's alarm bells started ringing, 
So much so that she called Barry out on an email. I'm now becoming worried about where my money might be. You cannot afford to become slack, let alone dishonest, exclamation mark. Barry replied, I did action but was waiting for your request to put funds into your account. But that's what I'd done. Anyway, I am certainly not slack. Listen, certainly not dishonest. Bronwyn, I just feel so bad that you thought I had let you down. I do apologize. Then, when I was home, me, I do owe you a huge apology. I am sorry I freaked out. Now, you may have gathered that Bronwyn is a pretty calm and reasonable person, as you would expect for a retired pastor or care worker. So for her to even get to the level of anxiety to confront Barry in the first place, she must have been on DEFCON 1 alert level. But yet she is the one that ended up apologising to Barry. Gaslighting 101. He made a couple of mistakes in later years that, that should have rung alarm bells with the insurances. And it didn't because I trusted him by then. I just trusted him, eh? I've been with him too long and he made a couple of real cock-ups. And I thought, that's not right, mate. That should not have happened. And, and, it, and you, just, you just moved on because his excuse was, uh, oh, not a problem. You know, it's cost you about a thousand bucks. I'll tell you what, I'll cover that cost. I'll cover that cost. It shouldn't have happened. We shouldn't have done that. And so he, he, he covered his tracks and gave a very plausible excuse. And also he would sometimes come in a different car. He would sometimes ring on a different cell phone number and I said to him one time, oh, you've obviously got a new number, I'll update it. Oh, no, don't do that. My other phone's out of action, I've just got a loner. And he did that a couple of times and the cars were really, really odd too. Like he'd come in a different vehicle and you'd think, oh my God, what is actually going on here? Since about 2014, we never met at his office again. He always came to meet us at our house. And I'd say, oh, oh, we can pop into your office if you. Oh no, oh no, he said, I'm down your way on Thursday. He said, I'll pop in and see you. And and the reports, they no longer came every six months. They were annually. Everybody had a little piece of the puzzle that didn't quite fit when it came to Barry. But all those niggles and doubts over the years, if they were put on a scale, every time they were outweighed by the trust that Barry had pretty much weaponized and turned against the investors. Like my father-in-law, David. I did go on the Concilium platform and it did say that investors could have their own password and access to the platform. And I emailed Barry and said, can I have a password and access? And he came very quickly back and said, no, sorry, mate, I don't operate like that. It's all controlled through me. And I just had this gut feeling and thought, well, what's going on? And in fact, I very nearly emailed him back and, and my flippant way saying so you've stolen all my money and you won't give me access I very nearly did that and I would have been being stupid you know because I viewed him as a good mate and I would have expected him to come back and say ha ha yeah and I didn't but that just shows you that that was just a real warning sign. Even after 40 years of knowing Barry David's sense that something was off was so strong that he actually did take action. About a year before he got shut down, I rang Concilium up and the, the guy that answered the phone said, well, you'll have to go back through your financial advisor. I said, yes, I know that, but he won't give me access. So can you tell me, do I exist? And he went, click, click. Yes, you do exist. And I said, well, my statements from Clue are showing that we have about $500,000 in our portfolio. 
without telling me the balance, does that exist? And he said, yes, I can tell you that exists. So I hung up and I said to him, well, that's okay. I felt a lot better. I thought we exist. It is just the way that Clue works. He just controls uh, what happens from concilium and then sends it out to the investors. But in hindsight, had I pursued that, obviously he didn't want people to have access. Just purely gut feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. you get that feeling in your gut. And unfortunately, I never followed up on it. David had got excruciatingly close to the truth, but thanks to his call with Concilium, all his doubts had been put to rest. That guy that gave me the balance of our account, there was no breakdown that most of that account was under external, which external obviously meant, as you'll be aware now, that he was just fictitiously making those entries on the platform. Yeah. Now, I think it's time to address the elephant in the room. There is no doubt that Barry Clue is completely and unequivocally responsible for the theft of over $15 million. But you may be thinking, surely, surely to God, there are some checks and balances along the way to stop this happening. And as this is still being untangled legally, I want to step lightly around it to avoid jeopardising any future legal avenues available to the victims. And of course, there will be far more skilled bodies than myself combing over the processes that platforms like Concilium and Discovery have in place that enabled Barry Clue to hide his fraud in plain sight in the infamous external column. But I think the lesson here learned at the expense of Barry Clue's victims is if you are investing, ask the question, just what fire breaks do platforms like Concilium and Discovery have in place to protect your investments? But of course, that's not the only elephant in the room. Here's Mike Houlihan from the Otago Daily Times. I attach no blame to them whatsoever for investing through someone who they should have should have had absolute faith in. Because if you ignore the fact that he's a flat out thief and shouldn't have been scaling from them, even then as an AFA, he shouldn't have been even contemplating doing any such thing. He was government guaranteed, so to speak, that he was going to look after their money and give them proper advice. The government created the AFA system the government put out press statements saying this was done to safeguard people's money from theft. Therefore, if someone who's an AFA steals money and your systems fail to prevent that from happening, you've arguably failed to exercise a duty of care to the investor in the situation. So, you know, it's an argument that could be made. We have a new accountant now, and I showed her my file, my crime file, as I like to call it, and she said that she could not have bolted anything that Clue sent me. She was amazed at the detail on those financial statements. She said, were, the guy is very, very shrewd and very clever. He had it down. He didn't even put the dollars. He put cents amounts in as well, you know, and just absolute code numbers. Everything. Well, I, I, I think from what we believe, he was only ever audited once in 25 years. And... To me, I just can't realise how he was never picked up. Even the banks apparently had so many different, he had 40-odd different bank accounts and and the names that he had the bank accounts in. You know, it it must have rung bells with somebody. Yeah, there's even people that we know that where he altered checks and the banks accepted them. And that just reminds me again, uh, I think it would be about five or six years ago when we were at his office and he said, oh, I'm flat stick at the moment. I'm sending exams for my financial advisor because there's new legislation that came out for, you know, security and this and the other. 
And he said, oh, he said, I've got to pass these exams for me to carry on as a financial advisor. And he said, it's to protect me and to protect you guys as well. I remember that very clearly. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Coming up in the next episode of Clueless, the long con. That was spooky. That was like, fuck me. Hold on a minute, what's happening here? I was fuming about Barry Clue, and I decided I'm going to go round to his house and confront him with it. I got an email from someone called Barry Clue, and I uttered an obscenity very loudly, and it was an invitation to sit down and talk to him. Don't forget to subscribe to Clueless, the long con, so you'll never miss an episode. This is an independently made podcast. You can find out more on Instagram at conmunitypodcast. That's con with an N. Please support the podcast with a five-star review, a share on social media, or even go old school and tell a mate on a dog walk to have a search for Clueless the Long Con wherever they listen to their podcasts. That's Clueless spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down Something is creeping in Don't follow it down If you're a fan of true crime, then this is for you. CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming back to London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June 2022 and launching in Glasgow on Saturday the 10th of September 2022. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favourite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by CBS Reality, the expert-led true crime TV channel. I will be at all CrimeCons this year, Las Vegas, Glasgow, London, you name it, I will be there. So do come and join us, quote, see the C, that's C for con, the C for con, for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. Ah! That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.